Welcome to the IWI's December 2011 CFITrainer.net podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk to one of the presenters from this year's IWI annual training conference, Richard Vickers, about dispelling the myth that low-voltage assemblies are incompetent fire ignition sources. Then we'll hear more about the National Fire Research Laboratory's new facility and see how a single photo broke the Provo Tabernacle Fire case. We begin by welcoming Richard Vickers, who gave a popular and eye-opening presentation at this year's ATC back in June called Low Voltage, the Incompetent Ignition Source, Dispelling the Myth. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. I'm glad to be here. What assumptions have been made in the past about the ignition capability of low-voltage electrical products? Well, pretty much the assumptions have been broad-based in that investigators are quick to look to what are considered the high-voltage ignition sources. And when I say high-voltage, there's a range from anywhere from what's coming out of your wall down to um, what is produced by what's called a Class II transformer, which is usually in the 24 to 30-volt range. That's typically where people have focused the Low voltage that I'm talking about is orders of magnitude below that as a competent ignition source. What was the basis for those assumptions? I'm not sure, actually. Um, I've been in this industry for about 10 years, um, and before this I was uh, in failure analysis capabilities at some Fortune 100 companies, and I honestly don't know where it comes from. I think it, I think it comes from a lack of understanding of the, the, the chemistries and the scale of how fires can start on electronic assemblies and as it gets confused with how compartment fires generate, uh, which are two totally different vehicles from a fire dynamic standpoint. So I, th- I think if I had to guesstimate, that's probably where that is coming from. What's causing us now to challenge the long-held belief that low-voltage electrical products do not possess sufficient energy to cause ignition? What's changed? Well, well, simply what's, what we're seeing in the field. And, and what we're seeing in the field tracks with um, an axiom uh, called Moore's Law by Robert Moore, who was one of the co-founders of Intel, who said uh, about every 18 months you're going to see a doubling of your, your horsepower and your computer devices and a, um, a halving of the amount of real estate used. And as that happens, as things get more dense and they get more powerful and your computers and your cell phones get more powerful and smaller, um, the the density of the electronics increases, and the the pitch or the spacings between the electronic components gets smaller. Well, as that happens, um, the processes that create those products are also more sensitive to we'll call it the chemistries to produce a high quality uh, board. And I think it's that miniaturization and the lack of uh, understanding of industry, or at least in the investigation community, of what that means when those products go into a certain environment and how they can behave when they get into certain failure modes that can produce fires. How can ignition at low voltages occur? Well, here's a good example. Um, Let's say you have a remote control for your television set, and you've got uh, a 9-volt battery in it, or you've got uh, three or four double-A AA or triple-A batteries in it. If that remote control is sitting on your countertop and you're not home and it was designed and manufactured in such a way that the circuit board has a certain level of what is called ionic contamination on the board, which is a, a slurry of unwanted contaminants on the board that are a result of the manufacturing process being out of control, then you can get uh, what are called sneak circuits, unintentional circuits forming, that actually develop circuit paths that you don't want and also develop 
uh, resistance paths or conductance paths that you don't want. And when that occurs, not only does the device start behaving in an erratic fashion, i.e. It, it can tell it to do things or control uh, the controlling device in ways it's not intended to do, but it can also have hot spots in and of itself between the circuit traces generating on the circuit board itself. And, it, and it's those hot spots that in the presence of the right level of contamination and in the presence of circuit boards that aren't really following the flame retardant requirements as they should, that are also contained in plastics that aren't following the flame retardancy requirements that they should, uh, you have a, a pretty good recipe for a fire. It's amazing to think that a remote control can start a fire. People will dismiss battery-powered products, like I say, and I think that falls into the misnomer that just because it's a small battery doesn't mean it has sufficient energy um, to create a competent ignition source, and that just isn't true. And, and that's, like I said, as we keep looking at uh, the finer pitch technologies and, and the, the battery technologies that are putting more and more current into these smaller devices, we do have enough energy to sustain a fire. What are a few examples of real cases where a low-voltage electrical product was the fire cause? Well, here, here's an interesting one, and, and this kind of goes into the, my area of origin is not necessarily where my root cause mm -hmm. of the fire is. In other words, I have fire damage in a room, but the fire, the cause of the fire actually occurred in an area where I had no fire. And most people say, well, how's that possible? That's not possible. And again, this is one of the misnomers in our industry. Well, when you're talking about homes, for instance, which have networks and distributed audio, um, we'll call them even smart homes, but the average home. Um, I can have a fire in a compartment, which is where the fire broke out or where the failure mechanism finally resulted in the heat source um, that came in contact with the first fuel and developed into the fire. But my failure that precipitated that event could have been on a device that was wired into the product that finally caught on fire. And an example of that is um, I had a case about... Um, eight years ago, I think, and I've had several since, actually, where I had an audio system in a home that was reportedly uh, working fine by the homeowner, um, and then the fire broke out, and the investigators honed in on the air of origin in, in the vicinity of a speaker. Well, speakers in and of themselves don't catch on fire um, unless they're overdriven um, or there's some other defect in them, and that wasn't the case in this scenario. So in looking at the damage to the speaker and everyone agreeing that's the area of greatest damage, um, which per 921 can, can be a, a gotcha if that's the way you're looking for your area of origin, I look back to say, well, what was driving the speaker? And as I looked further down the line and followed the wires back, I came to an amplifier. And the amplifier was not fire damage. It had a little bit of heat on the surface, but it was not in the area of origin. Um, as we took that apart and did some diagnostics on it, we found that there were levels of non-fire-introduced manufacturing contamination on the circuit boards that were causing these stray circuits that I previously discussed. And those stray circuits were not only causing this amplifier to turn on when it was not asked to turn on, but it was causing the, without getting too technical, which was causing the, the rail voltage or the total power of this amplifier to basically um, transmit into the speaker. So instead of just getting a nice sound or audio waveform, we were getting amount of current or power into that speaker that it wasn't designed to take because of the contamination bridging on the amplifier uh, circuit board. So again, that was a 
it was interesting because as we looked at it, and then everybody was scratching their head and saying, well, the amplifier even plays because we hooked it up to a speaker, and it did. And as you would play the amplifier and as you hooked it up to the right analytical gear, you would see that the signal was modified. It wasn't a correct audio signal. It had a high level of what's called DC voltage on it or DC offset, which said to me that it was getting a voltage that it wasn't designed to produce, and we had to figure out why. And that came down to um, specific board-level testing through a machine called an ion chromatography analyzer that came back and said, here are the contaminants, here's where they are, here's why they shouldn't be there, and here's what they're doing to produce this sneak circuit, which is overstressing the speaker and basically causing it to become a glow wire. Wow. And the amplifier was off? Well, the homeowner had reported that at the time of the fire it was off, but another misnomer with solid-state electronics of the last 20 years is there's really no such thing as anything being off anymore. So when you put turn the off button on your computer or when you press the off button on your phone, all you're doing is putting that product into a suspended state of animation via software. The microprocessor is still running. It's still pulling at a very high rate to see if you're touching that on button. And when it does, it says, okay, I'm going to pop to life. But it's really never powered down. So the homeowner, you know, as far as they were concerned, everything was fine. But when we went looking at the audio signal and then actually tried to accelerate the condition with raising ambient humidity just slightly, um, the effect was dramatic. And um, you can still hear audio over a, a signal that is disrupted by this level of contamination Unless you're an audiophile with the with the golden ear, I call it, you're not going to really notice a degradation in sound drop off until you get to the failure mode where the speaker goes into a an end state like we did in this one uh, fire, and we actually had breakout at the speaker. You know, when you mention uh, all the things related to amplifiers and speakers, it makes a guy like me pretty nervous. And, and again, not not to cause a, a a false alarm because because most of the products that we buy and we have in our homes are actually manufactured to very high quality standards, and these are companies that are try striving to hit six sigma quality levels, and most of them are doing a good job. On the, on the practical side, things like this do happen when processes, um, and I've seen a lot of products coming out of the Pacific Rim when the processes are are not following their their central line and producing failure rates, we'll call it, that are higher than uh, than industry norms. Richard, how can fire investigators incorporate this information into their hypothesis testing process? Good question, um, and I've been asked that many times. The first thing you need to do, to do is you need to open up your eyes to a larger area of interest, I call it, not just the area of origin. So in my example, don't just consider the room that flashed over. Take a step back and think about all of the wires, interconnects, and products that are talking inside and out of that room. And as you do that, you're going to want to harvest all of those things, especially if you have a room that's fully involved in fire. You're going to be taking everything in that room anyways. But you might want to consider if I have a modem that was outside of that room that was wired into the PC or that was wired into the distributed audio amp or whatever it is that was in the area of fire. Um, so you're, you're going to want to expand your area of origin to what I call an area of interest. That's number one. Um, number two is you don't want to casually, and I've seen this on many uh, fire scenes, you're not going to want to casually just dismiss or walk on top of battery-powered devices and just say, well, it wasn't plugged in, it's battery-powered, therefore it's not a competent ignition source. 
Um, that's how evidence gets destroyed and lost and spoliated. You want to be careful when you're processing the scene. You want to grab those things, and you want to preserve them in a way, especially if it's solid-state electronics gear, that subsequent analysis is still possible. And what I mean by that is you want to preserve it in such a way that if you have to do any type of chemistry testing on the circuit boards, you haven't degraded or put any type of other residue from the fire scene onto the board that would cause a, a false reading or a poor reading in ion chromatography. So the investigator would want to have, for instance, the simplest thing to do, and I think the most practical, is to have, for instance, tinfoil. And to have tinfoil that you wrap these circuit boards in tightly, and then you put it in your evidence collection bag, you mark it, um, and it goes through the, uh, the processing and the, the chain of custody is normal. But that will at least protect the circuit board from any additional residues, mishandling, uh, from being stepped on, and hopefully will retain enough of the original condition that more specific testing, like I mentioned, ion chromatography, can go in and hone in further on what the chemistries of the boards were pre-fire. So that's another thing that the investigator needs to do. Beyond that, and this kind of falls out of the purview of the investigator, but maybe in the purview of the engineer, they need to have an understanding and appreciation for the actual schematic and the functional operation of the product that they're investigating. They need to understand, for instance, in the amplifier example that I discussed, how boards are laid out, how, how components are soldered to boards, how traces are so close together that I could couple um, a, a voltage that's supposed to be a very low signal level. Um, I could couple that voltage directly under the input of a speaker, and it's not supposed to be there. So you have to have an appreciation and an ability to do the circuit analysis that I think in our industry we tend to fall short of. We tend to look at branch circuit wires. We tend to look for arc sites and arc mapping throughout a room. But we tend to then stop when we say, wow, I think it's getting too tough. Now we have to look at electronics and fine-pitch semiconductor devices. And I just think a lot of people tend to want to say, well, you know, if i got to get to that level, I, I just don't know if I can take it to the fire cause there. Well, there are fire causes there. We need to step it up. Seems like another place where fire investigators have more demands, need to collect more evidence, and protect the scene from spoliation. And that's a great point. And, 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 that, and that marries up well with the latest edition of 921 and, and previous editions, is, is that it is our responsibility to protect evidence such that everybody in the investigation process, all the notified parties, anybody that's trying to figure out what happened gets the same evidentiary value from what was processed and harvested. And, and, and in doing that and thinking about when, we're, when you're walking through the fire scene and you're starting to process it, that you have the responsibility um, to, to harvest all of these pieces of product, even though you might not think for whatever reason and your training says, I just don't believe that's possible. You have, the, you have the obligation to do that because somebody else is going to be following you up that might have the knowledge, skills, education, experience to take that level of analysis further, and you need to afford them the opportunity to do it. Because at the end of the day, and this is my sanity test for all of this, you know, low-voltage fires, 921 aside, if we don't do this and if we don't get to root cause, then we don't prevent fires from occurring. So that's my sanity test. If, if, if I haven't been able to drive this down to that level of root cause where I can take an action to prevent this from recurring, then I haven't prevented fires from occurring again. And I think that's what we're here to do, isn't it? 
Thanks for wrapping up with prevention, Richard. So many people think that fire investigation is only about arson. Our audience is out there every day working to reduce the number of fires, whether they're intentional or accidental. Well, obviously, if there's a bad guy, we want to put him away. But but I think I think if everybody thinks of it in those terms, it, it kind of makes you more, it keeps you very objective, I think is the way I look at it. Thanks again for your time, Richard. You've made our job here at CFI Trainer easier with pure information that can help investigators in the field. Thank you. Now let's turn to the news. NIST has announced that the National Fire Research Laboratory is adding a new 21,400 square foot laboratory space to its existing large fire laboratory that will greatly expand its capacity to conduct research in the fire performance of structures. By accommodating fires up to 20 megawatt heat release and full-scale structures up to two stories high, the new facility will allow more realistic fires and structural loading under controlled laboratory conditions. An experimental database on the performance of large-scale structures subjected to fire is also planned. The research at the new facility is expected to significantly improve the knowledge base of fire-resisted performance of materials, structures, building design, and building construction. The expansion and the subsequent research it will enable will allow scientists and engineers from industry, academia, and government agencies to work side-by-side -side to tackle critical knowledge gaps and solve technical problems. More information on this project and the facility's specifications can be found using the link on this podcast page. Our second news story demonstrates how a single photograph can be critically important to determining fire cause. On December 16, 2010, the Provo Tabernacle in Provo, Utah was preparing for a Christmas concert to be held the next day. During the preparations, a camera operator for Brigham Young University Broadcasting named Scott Morgan became curious about the architecture of the historic building. While looking at the Tabernacle Attic's interesting truss structure, he took a picture with his cell phone. The very next day, the Tabernacle was nearly destroyed by fire. Parts of the facade survived, but the roof completely collapsed and the interior was gutted, making the fire investigation very difficult. But investigators caught a break. A friend of Fire Marshal Lynn Schofield sent a message that his son had taken a picture of the attic just the day before the fire. The friend's son was Scott Morgan. When investigators examined the photo, they saw that there was a lamp that had been placed on a combustible wooden speaker housing. That evidence in the photo resolved conflicting witness statements about the lighting for the concert. That lamp had been moved to that location during the concert preparations. Its 300-watt bulb was energized during a dress rehearsal for the concert and subsequently ignited a wooden speaker enclosure. The final report found that the fire severity was worsened by the lack of automatic sprinklers and a fire notification system as well as failure by employees to alert the fire department of smoke odor and recognize the fire alarm. The church has announced that the tabernacle will be restored. We close with IAAI news. In January 2012, IAAI will roll out the first offering of the Evidence Collection Technician Practicum in Indianapolis. Upon successful completion of the prerequisites and testing, the candidates will hold the newest IAAI ECT designation. Please see the website for details. Planning is underway for the IAAI's 63rd Annual Training Conference being held April 22nd through the 27th, 2012 at Dover Downs in Delaware. Again this year, IAAI will bring you topics that are pertinent in the fire investigation field today. They will be instructed by world-class leaders in the industry. 
New at this 2012 ATC, it is a week-long track designed specifically for the insurance industry. The track was developed and will be taught by some of the industry's leading instructors on insurance fraud and investigation. That concludes this IWICFITrainer.net podcast. Don't forget to check out the links on this podcast page for more information on this month's stories. For the IWI and CFI Trainer, I'm Rod Ammon.